was dropping two atomic bombs on Japan, the right thing to do. On today's Pod 20, I'll talk to Emily Strasser, whose grandfather worked on those bombs. Hi, I'm Graham Mack with a rundown of the most popular podcasts right now, according to downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. You'll also be hearing from some of the podcasters that made the chart this week, including a bloke who reckons the quickest way to get to Manchester from London is via Southampton. The Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in the UK, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms, and as a podcast itself. Into the chart now, and at number 20, drama queens. Brooke, Peyton, and Haley are your BFFs. 19. The Jordan B. Peterson Podcast, the podcast that will change the way you think. 18. Comfort Eating with Grace Dent. Grace invites famous guests to talk about their comfort foods. 17. Tales from the Tannoy. Eleanor Hamilton chats with voiceover artists. Eleanor, you and your late husband, Phil Sayer, set up a voiceover business. There's lots of names for the people who do this kind of work. Voiceover artists, voice actors, audio performers. Now, well, the Americans have got hold of it, haven't they? So it's voice talent and, yeah. well, you know. I even heard an American voiceover person describe some of the work she does as, as voice under. And it was to do, yeah, it was to do with when they're doing like really emotional documentaries and they have to have the emotional, you know, the, 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 the dramatic sense. stories. It's got to be, instead of being a voiceover, it's got to be a voice under because it's got to be, it's got to oh, be I sensitive. Like yes. Yeah, I forget her name now. Yeah, but uh, yeah, all kinds of things. So you do, with Tales from the Tannoy, episode one is your story. Yeah. Now, was that because either you've got an amazing story and you wanted to set up what the thing was about, or was it going to be something that was quite painful to talk about and you needed to rip the plaster off? Um, Because it's the it elephant was... in the room, isn't it, if you're not going to do yeah. your story? Exactly. And I think I had to. I think it was it, it was only fair um, to tell my story if I was going to expect everybody else to tell theirs. Um, it's weird, actually, because I can't really listen to it anymore. Um, and it's Episode not because one. I don't. Yeah, yeah I've, I've, I've heard it. It's fine. Other people like it. But I don't want to go back there. Um, but actually, it it wasn't. I didn't tell the story of. Phil dying um, in in that sense because I didn't think it was really fair to go into any great detail about you know the, the the awful death that is cancer because it's it wasn't the Phil that I wanted to remember I want people to remember the the mind the gap guy and the funny guy whose outtakes are on YouTube and that kind of thing it's it's, it's almost irrelevant what the the death was like um, so I, we kind of talked about the fact that he had died and then life since because. In it's it's just it was just weird, you know. This kind of it, this horrendous two years that was supposed to end didn't end because after four months, then I got the breast cancer, and then the you know the boys were in such a mess, and we were all in a mess, and it was it was horrible. But in the in the end, what happened was my darling husband somehow, and I'm quite sure it was him, um, created a, a situation in which I met somebody else 
um, which I, I don't know. I, I almost don't want to talk about it too much because I want people to listen to episode one and, and hear the story being told okay. as it should okay. be told. No spoilers. But, yeah. No, no spoilers. But it's it. Uh, suffice to say, I think it's a happy ending in terms of it's not the ending that I wanted when I stood up and married my husband. I didn't expect it to end within 15 years and I didn't expect it to end like that. But it did end, but it, it didn't because it, there was something new and it's been a, a kind of, a, I don't want to say a positive outcome because it's that su- suggests that do you know what I mean? I, it's yeah. I've just carried on. I've just carried yeah. on. That's it. You know, I, I haven't. I couldn't give it up. It wasn't the end. It was a. It was a significant part, but it was not the end of the story. I, you know, exactly. I know. I know someone. I was in a. I was in a band in New Zealand, and uh, the, after I'd left, many years after I'd left the band and come to England and everything, the, the drummer died, and we went back for a visit to New Zealand because my wife's parents live there and we went back and we and we went went and met um uh joe's wife and uh she was just it was years after he died and it was still what defined her and i thought that's a bit sad because you got all that it's not what joe would have wanted joe i knew joe yeah. pukaro he was the drummer in the band he was great yeah, and right. joe wouldn't want her moping around and you know, constantly watching old videos of the band and stuff. He'd wanted to, to mm. kind of move on, and so I, yeah. I get what you're saying. It, it's it's not it's not good for a person to to have that define them. It's a very very important mm. part of what happened, and I can't even relate. So I don't even know why mm. I'm saying this. I can't relate. I've not had anything that tragic happen to me, thankfully. But mm. uh, it, it's got to be a massive part of who you are and what you've been through. But it yeah. can't totally define you. You know, I'm bringing up his boys, and they're just so like him. And you know, oh, you'd see him in oh there, wouldn't you? God, wow. Oh, yeah. You know, the the one of them cannot help but share his opinions on everything, <laughs> <laughs> which is just like his father. And the other one tells inappropriate jokes and and comes out with comments that he really shouldn't come out with. And it's like it's like Phil's never left the room. Um, and it's lovely. And um, what I love about my partner Ed, the the guy I'm with now, is that he he sees Phil as a real legend. You know. You know, he, he listens to stories of him and, you know, obviously now he's around helping to bring up his boys and he he doesn't look at him with any kind of jealousies like, oh, oh what would Phil have said? What, you know, what was he like? Because he knows that he was a, a great guy and I think we both just want to kind of do the best that we can for Phil and for, for his boys because he, he just loved his boys so much. He was a brilliant dad and, and that was the, his biggest regret was that cancer was going to take him away from them. Yeah. More than anything, because they were just, you know, they're just amazing kids. And um, it's not been amazing (laughs) for the last five years, I have to say. It's been pretty tough, but they're all right now. You've come through it great, Eleanor, and you've got a great podcast, Tales from the Tannoy, which is at number 17 this week on the pod 20. 16, On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. 15. Real Dictators. Paul McGann explores the hidden lives of history's tyrants. 14. Case File True Crime. Fact is scarier than fiction. Number 13. Behind the Bastards. The worst humans in history. The latest episode is Hitler's Drug Problem. 12. Monday Morning Podcast. Bill Burr rants about getting the look. Sharks versus Helicopters. And Australia. Number 11. Revisionist History. Malcolm Gladwell's journey through the overlooked and misunderstood.
Number 10. Richie Firth, Travel Hacker. Richie is from the Home Time Show on Absolute Radio, and he sets off on missions involving cars, trains, planes, boats, and more. Richie, you and I have presented many radio programs together, and when podcast radio listeners found out that you were going to be on, they started sending some messages in. This one's from Dan Gold. It says, I stopped working for this. Hope it was worth it, Dan. <laughs> it won't have been. <laughs> yeah. We don't get that many air traffic controllers. Um, but anyway, uh, no, he's not an air traffic controller. And also, Cider Emma sent a message. Used to love that breakfast show. So I don't know which Aww. one. But it we one of the ones you were on. I don't know which one. But, I think it will be uh, you and I, uh, yes. and it's a cider drinking uh, West Country friend. Oh, is this because you used to make me play the Wurzels on the air? Has it got I, well, uh, yeah, yeah, we were in Dorset, so uh, they, yeah. they drink cider down there. So that's that's my uh, detective work. Okay, let's get to some travel hacks then. What is your mm. favourite travel hack? Because I've got a couple to share with you that you might want to investigate on the podcast. It's up to you. But I'd like to know, as you are the travel hacker, if yes. you've got a, have you got some favourites, maybe a top three or even a top one travel Yeah, hacks. do you know what? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from... I'm going to go from that first season. Um, the M25 one was really fun to do. It was the one that really was the chrysalis of the whole podcast. Mm -hmm. um, so I cherish that one. And when we get back out, little little bit of a tip, uh, when we get back out, I want to do it again, but anti-clockwise. Uh, because I'd, <laughs> I'd said that, uh, sorry, no, I'd, I want to do it clockwise because we did it anti-clockwise because we drive on the left here in the UK. So I figured that you had more of a chance breaking the two hour barrier if you did anti-clockwise because you're going to be further in on the uh, the concentric rings, oh, I if that see. makes it's, any it's sense. the inside lane. Yeah, I see. Yeah, Correct. Yeah. So when we get back out, we're going to try and do it again, see if we can break it in under two hours, but on the outside lane. So going clockwise. So anyway, I cherish that one. I think one of my favourites was trying to show that the quickest way to travel between London and Manchester was to get a train from London to Southampton. And then fly. Yeah. And then fly. And that caused a lot of arguments between that me and Chris. That can't be quicker, though. I've done Euston to Manchester a few times because um, I used to work at Radio and we had a breakfast show in Manchester. And so I've done that quite a bit. And it's it's really quite quick. It's like, I think it's two hours, 20 minutes, something like that on a train. Yeah. Um, we started uh, from uh, the London Eye, a big, big monument in okay. London that everyone would know. Yeah. Um, and the goal was to get to get to Old Trafford. To get to Old because Trafford. Because the, okay. the premise was that most Manchester United fans don't live in Manchester. <laughs> they live in London. So yeah. what was going to be the quickest way for them to get up to watch their home team? So the goal was to go from the London Eye to Old Trafford. Who would get there quickest? Would it be the person using the train? Uh, or would it be the person who catches a train to Southampton and then flies on the old flyby service from Southampton to Manchester? Now, there was not much in it whatsoever. Really? It was, a re it was a really bad result, I would say, for the railway. I'll be honest, I lost this one, but only by a matter of minutes. Only by a matter of minutes. And when you consider that I've gone on the train to Southampton and then caught a plane from Southampton all the way up to Manchester, there's no way there should only have been minutes in it. Because I've always wondered, I live in Hitchin, which isn't far from Luton Airport. 
And I've always wondered when I go up to Liverpool to watch Liverpool, whether it would be quicker for me to fly to Belfast and then catch another flight from Belfast to Liverpool than it would to take the train from Euston. Because to get the train from Euston from here, I have to go south into London yeah. to King's Cross St Pancras and then either walk or take the tube to Euston and then, and then go north. Yeah. Is that a future hack that you're putting to me? It might be. It might. It might be. Whether yeah, to, but that's yeah. From Luton to maybe you could go from Central and I don't know. I don't. I don't. See, already you know this is dragging you in. This is why yeah, oh, this yeah. is a good podcast because you know who do, who doesn't love that? Yeah, you know, when you think back in the day, right? When you're going to a really really dull family meeting, all right, and you haven't seen loads of the family members. What's the first thing that everyone does? They talk. They talk about the route. How, how did you get here today? Oh well, I took the A1. Oh, you took the A1. Oh, I wouldn't normally take that. I'd take the A3. And then suddenly people are talking about travel. You know? Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody's got. A, it's a challenge, as, as you mm. mentioned earlier, to everybody. Uh, everybody wants to do it. I know when. You know, because I've lived all over England, not on purpose, but it's just kind of worked out that way. You flee places. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. I flee mostly. But anyway, um, I usually go to broadcasting seminars in the US. I usually fly from the local airport where I live. So when I lived in Teesside, instead of getting the train or something to Heathrow to fly to Los Angeles... I would get a KLM flight from Durham Tees Valley Airport to Amsterdam to go the wrong way and then get the the same KLM airline all the way to LA, which meant you checked your bags in at Durham Tees Valley and you got them back in Los Angeles. That's brilliant. That's fantastic. That is a travel hack. Yeah. And then the other one I've done loads of times is when I've flown to the US from a local airport, wherever it is, I go via Dublin. Because pretty much every local airport from Bournemouth, Southampton, wherever it is in the country, you can fly to Dublin with Ryanair. Yeah. And then pick up the Aer Lingus because the Aer Lingus gives you Wi-Fi on the plane. And the great thing with that one is you clear US customs in Ireland getting on the plane. Brilliant. You, you, so, so you do all your passport and your US. And so when you land in the US, it's like you've taken a domestic flight. You're in the airport and you're out and you're away. And uh, I've done that to Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. So that's that's another one you might want to try a few things on. I will build that. Uh, I will build that into future hacks uh, when people are going transatlantic. That's a, that's a really good one. I like that. It means you don't have to, because isn't there like the most dangerous part of, Travel is the um, the road trip to the airport. Will you and reduce that to a minimum if you're only going to your local airport, <laughs> yeah. catching a flight to Dublin, and then it's all air travel? This is true. Although they also say that the most risky bit is actually when you are literally driving home as well, because uh, you feel like you know the roads, so you you start to switch off. Yeah, um, well, then so it's also shorter though than if you had to true. drive to Heathrow. That's true. Maybe I've actually completely missed my vocation and I should be in some kind of risk assessment. Maybe you're right, Rich. Richie Firth, travel hacker, is at number 10 this week on the Pod 20. Nine, hidden brain. Shankar Vedantam uses science and storytelling to reveal the unconscious patterns that drive human behaviour. Number eight, shagged married annoyed. 
The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. 7. Smartless Jason Bateman, Sean Hayes and Will Arnett host a podcast that connects and unites people from all walks of life. At 6. The Bomb Presented by Emily Strasser I have a vivid childhood memory of visiting my grandmother's house near Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Above the bed where I slept hung a photo of my grandfather standing in front of a mushroom cloud. I'd stare at his image on my grandmother's wall for hours. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I never met my grandfather. He died before I was born. But now I know what he did. Now I know what he helped to create. Last night's target for the first atomic bomb was the city of Hiroshima on the shores of the inland sea west of Kobe. My grandfather worked on the bomb that dropped on the city of Hiroshima 75 years ago. As I've grown older, I've tried to make sense of my grandfather's choices. I've tried to make sense of what he was involved with. And I'm still trying to make sense of what humanity unleashed when it dropped that bomb. Emily, history has shown us that the two atomic bombs dropped on Japan ended the Second World War. The Japanese surrendered only days after the second bomb was dropped. Mm-hmm. Now that you've, you know you've definitely got this family connection, are you proud of your grandfather or ashamed of him? That's a complicated question. And basically, you know, that's been sort of was part of my driving interest in doing this research and writing. I've done a lot of research and writing on this outside of the podcast. Um, I, I, I would say that whether or not the bombs were necessary to ending the war, um, as far as I have researched, is still a matter of historical debate. And I don't yeah. claim to be a historian who, um, who takes a side on that. Um, Nagasaki is a stickier issue because there were only three days and, you know, everybody was kind of freaking out and trying to figure out what was going on. So people are. When, people when you who, say only three days, do, uh, do you think that Japan was not given enough time after the first bomb to surrender? Some people argue that. Some people who say that Hiroshima was um, important to ending the war say that Nagasaki was not necessary, was sort of a cruel kind of last attack that wasn't necessary. And they say that the real reasons for Nagasaki were that they wanted to keep the Soviets out of the war. Um, and they wanted to try out a plutonium bomb. So they had two yeah. kinds of bombs. And they the second, because the, the first bomb, Little Boy, was a different, the, the Hiroshima one was different to Fat Man, right. which went on Nagasaki. Are you suggesting that there might have been a motivation there from the scientists that they wanted to try this other kind of bomb before it was too late. Well, it, it wouldn't have been the scientists. It would have been the military. Okay. Uh, the scientists didn't get to decide how it was used. And part of the story that we're telling with Leo Szilard in the podcast shows some of the scientific opposition actually to the bombs being used at all. Um, right. Now, some scientists were for it and some were against it. I'm sure there was some scientific curiosity, you know, about how a kind of morbid fascination, right? How is this thing going to work? S scientists, yeah, this is a this is brand new science and that's exciting for any scientist 
except this is incredibly destructive. But your what your research found was, if anyone was driving this, it was more likely the military than the scientist. Yeah, absolutely. They had they had much more control, and they kind of designed the whole project that way. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it is a weird one to debate. The way I always saw it, and I know nothing about it. I haven't read anywhere near as much about it as you have. But it seemed that the story, the the narrative that I understand, right or wrong, and maybe you can shed some light on this for me, is that Japan was not likely to surrender. They were going to go to the bitter end. A, a ground invasion of Japan would have cost who knows how many lives, and it mightn't have ended it. We're six years into a war that people are fed up with, and you know, to bring it to the current day and perspective, you know. We're fed up of this pandemic thing, and we just want life to get back to normal. And I just wonder if there was just a desire to just end this thing so we can get back to normal, mm -hmm. and that this just seemed like a quicker way to end it, which could have saved lives because of you wouldn't have had a protracted ground mm -hmm. war in Japan. Am I, from what you've learned, are my feelings on that close or nowhere near? So this is a very contentious matter, and I'm not, you know, taking a stand that represents um, that th that any kind of official position there. Um, but the feeling you got from doing your research, I mean, where I come down, I think Nagasaki is very sticky and may not have been necessary. Mm -hmm. um, it's so complicated when you get to Hiroshima and, and what do you say by necessary and how do you know how many people would have died in a land invasion? Because that's an estimate. Yeah. Um, I think what I'm more interested in, and it may sound like I'm dodging your question, which maybe I am a little, but <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Um, You're loud. <laughs> I've kind of taken the stance that, you know, a lot of people have written and argued about um, the question of whether they were justified or not. And I think it's a legitimate and important argument, but um, I'm kind of interested in what the legacy of, of the fact that we used the bomb yeah. was and what yeah. it unleashed. And so, you know, the thing that the scientists were worried about was an arms race. That was a big part of why they opposed it. And then we get an arms race and we get escalation and we get the Cold War. What, what, who, who was worried about the military were worried about an arms race? No, the scientists. The scientists worried about an arms race. Did they, did they have anyone in, did they have Russia in mind? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. They, All right. Yeah, the, um, right. So they no, were thinking we need to keep the, so there were some people thinking we should keep the genie in the bottle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we shouldn't use it or um, we shouldn't start this precedent. So Leo Szilard, um, the guy who this podcast is focused on, this was a big part of his concern that he thought that um, once we use uh, a nuclear weapon, it kind of it, it does let the genie out of the bottle. Right. Other people are going to feel justified in using it. Other people are going to want to develop one. Yeah. Now, they also didn't know at this point that Germany had abandoned their efforts to build the bomb. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there were gaps in information there. And they'd also um, surrendered very, in May as well. And this was in the August when they dropped right. it. Right. Well, yeah. and that was part of their opposition, that a lot of the scientists had been motivated by trying to defeat the Nazis. And they thought that a lot of them were Jewish refugees, including Leo Szilard. So it yeah. was very personal for them. Yeah. So they thought, and, and they also had had reason to believe that the Germans um, were developing a bomb and were also ahead of the Americans. So there was this feverish rush and there was this idea of it's going to be so terrible if, I mean, imagine Hitler with a nuclear bomb. It's, yeah. 
an absolute nightmare. So I understand. And he already had rockets. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, in fact, the Germans abandoned the, their bomb project early in the war, but the Americans didn't know that. And so once they surrendered, that's kind of when some of the scientific opposition came out. And not all the scientists. It was um, still a small percentage were kind of taking a stand. Some people just said, mm, my job is a scientist. Like, I'm not going to get politically involved. Some people supported the use. Um, but a small group were very adamant in their opposition. And some people suggested that we should do a demonstration of the bomb. So like drop it on an abandoned island and tell the Japanese, you know, this is what we'll do to you if you don't surrender. Yeah. Yeah. Or even maybe, I don't know, a military target. Although I'm sure they justified Hiroshima as a military because it had industry and stuff, but it wasn't a naval base, which would have seemed the more obvious target yeah. you know for the for something right. that for that scale yeah absolutely it's a big story and it's made a great podcast the bomb presented by emily strasser is at number six this week on the pod 20 at five conan o'brien needs a friend after 25 years at the late night desk conan has never made a real and lasting friendship with any of his celebrity guests so he started a podcast to fix that Number four, Off Menu with Ed Gamble and James Acaster. Ed and James invite special guests into their magical restaurant to choose their favourite starter, main course, side dish, dessert and drink. Their latest guest is Bob Mortimer. Number three, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Parenting Hell. It's parenting, just not as you know it. Number two, Crime Junkie. Because you can never get enough true crime. And at number one, for the third week in a row, Short History Of, the podcast that transports you back in time to witness history's most incredible moments and remarkable people. It's November the 22nd, 1718. It's a sunny morning on Ocracoke Island, just off the outer banks of North Carolina. The calm waters sparkle. The sweet ocean breeze rustles the sea oats and the rolling dunes and the thick maritime forests. White waves crash on the sandy beaches of this beautiful and uninhabited strip of land that stretches for nine miles. On the inner side of the island, the pirate ship Adventure, captained by the notorious Edward Thatch, anchors. Inside the cabin, Thatch rubs his aching brow sitting at his desk which is cluttered with books, rolled charts and nautical instruments. A half-used wax candle flickers in front of him. He's tired from a long night of drinking dark rum and wine with his crew. He swigs water from a pewter mug while the boat rocks beneath him. On the deck, a crewman spots two merchant sloops cutting across the water in their direction. A jolt of panic goes through him. Despite the distance, he can make out the red coats of the men on board. He sounds the alarm. Thatch bursts from the cabin and locks his dark, menacing eyes onto the approaching ships. They are the Jane and the Ranger, commanded by Lieutenant Robert Maynard. It's an ambush. Blackbeard cuts the anchor with an axe. The deckhands make ready the sails and the long guns. The adventure is underway and turns. 
She fires her starboard guns at the sloops as she attempts to make a break for the open ocean on the other side of the island. With no cannons, Maynard's men fire muskets at the adventure. But then the adventure scores a direct hit on the ranger which runs aground. A blast to the Jane injures or kills around 20, but the Jane continues to move in. Thatch thinks his men outnumber those remaining on the enemy vessel. He gives the order to take the ship. Grappling hooks lock the ships together. Blackbeard and his pirates swing over and board, falling right into Maynard's trap. Maynard's armed sailors, hidden below deck, charge the pirate boarding party and take them by surprise. A bloody fight breaks out. Side swords and cutlasses swing. Muskets and pistols pop. A thick cloud of smoke engulfs the deck as the pirates and the king's men cut each other down. Edward Thatch and Robert Maynard make eye contact through the smoke. The two men, filled with bloodlust, rush at each other with swords drawn. In the early 18th century, across the Caribbean, the east coast of North America, the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea and the West African coast... Piracy runs rampant. The War of the Spanish Succession, otherwise known as Queen Anne's War, is over. Masses of suddenly unemployed privateers and British and American sailors have turned to crime, seeking their fortunes. This is the golden age of piracy. From 1716 to 1718, one man will become known as the most notorious and ruthless pirate of all time. You may well have heard the stories of his wild eyes that strike fear into the hearts of his enemies, the six pistols loaded and strapped to his chest, that before battles he lights his jet-black beard on fire, that somewhere hidden is a massive treasure, its location known only to him. The legend of Edward Thatch has grown to mythic proportions. From books to television to major motion pictures, fact and fiction are not always easy to separate. After all, at the centre of most legends is a kernel of truth. So who was Edward Thatch? What do we really know of this man? Where did he come from? Was he really as violent as they say? And how did he become the most famous and fearsome pirate to sail the seas? I'm Paul McGann. And this is a short history of Blackbeard the Pirate. A short history of number one on the pod 20. And that's it for episode 70. Thanks to this week's guest pod stars, Eleanor Hamilton, Richie Firth, Emily Strasser and Paul McGann. Next week, my special guest is the TV director and producer, Lee Salisbury, who hosts the podcast Soap from the Box, Lee, when you worked on Emmerdale, there was an actor on there who was written out of the show because of their bad behaviour on set, wasn't there? There was, yeah. This actor was a pain, yeah, a real pain. So they kind of got rid of rid of her mid-block. They had a scene which they knew could be her exit. What I love about the soap is they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't cope with that, as in they didn't let that happen. So if oh, anyone came on and they were diva, yeah, which is great. So no one was allowed to be like that, which is fantastic. So, so they just wrote her out. Just wrote her out, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's the power they have. Like we all would, you know, if they weren't happy with you on your job, you would go, you know. So, but it's great that that 
obviously I don't think that happens in film and stuff, some people, but you know, um, yeah, they're committed you know, to yeah, a film, great. aren't they? But uh, with a with a soap being, uh, you know, you're basically like Wallace and Gromit laying the tracks as the train is <laughs> is going along. Yes, you can turn you it in any direction you want. We're so hard, the crew and everyone. So you just can't have someone being like that. There's just no time to be like that. And there's yeah. no airs and graces. Corey, you've got the legends, Ken Barlow, William Roach and Barbara Knox. Been there years, but they still, you know, are treated like everyone else. And they treat you like everyone else. It's am- I, I was amazed, actually. And it's great. It's lovely. June Brown, one of the nicest people ever. You know, so because they've let that happen, they've inbred this system of like, you can't be, you know, you know, horrible, then that's yeah. great. So it's not allowed to happen. So, so it's, I would say you only deal with things that you would in normal life, you know, that you yeah. just have to deal with. So it's not, I would say it hundred, you know, 90% is, is just joy there. It is. You just have a laugh because again, you're working such long hours. You haven't got time to, you know, no one, every, and you're doing a dream job. Yeah. It's a dream job. So you're like, this is amazing. Yeah. And you auditioned so, yeah. Vicky McClaw, didn't you? Who, who went on to play Kate Fleming in Line of Duty. I did, yes, for Emmerdale, yeah. And how did, the, she didn't get the part. What went wrong there? What, why didn't Nothing she get it? Nothing went wrong again. You see so many brilliant actors. I always say this, you audition, you don't see, for a screen test, you don't see kind of 10, one good actor and nine, ugh, you see 10 amazing actors, you know? Yeah. So sometimes you just make decisions on hair colour. I mean, I actually really wanted Vicky, but the series producer didn't. And, and actually... You know what? She probably wasn't quite right for that part, but she was brilliant in the audition. You could, I could tell she was amazing. You know, yeah. she was going to go. And for her, probably it was the best thing, you know, that happened. Yeah. I mean, a lot of duty. You know, yeah. I've, yeah. So I always say to actors, never think you go to an audition. It's like, oh, you know, I didn't get it because I wasn't good. Because most of the time, if you're seeing Fremadale or EastEnders, they're not seeing actors that aren't very good. They're seeing the best, you know. Yeah, yeah. What I did find out is some actors who've done the national and lots of stage find it hard to adapt at first in auditions because they're used to playing things very differently, you know, so... The, you they, know, have they have to pull to it ch- back, do they? Rather than speak yeah, to the back of the room. And, and, yeah. and of course, everyone comes and they're so nervous, you know, especially in screen <laughs> tests on set with the big really? actors, you know. Oh, God, yeah, they, yeah. You can see it. And again, I always say to actors, you know, everyone is like that. So don't feel that you're the only one absolutely bricking it because everyone is, of course. Lee Salisbury from Soap from the Box, my special guest next week on the Pod 20. In the meantime, you can watch extended video chats with my guests on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. What will happen on the podcast radio chart next week? Will short history of stay at the top for a fourth week? Will your favourite podcast be at number one? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart. Make a recommendation at the podcast radio .co.uk Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more.